The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Let me uh, pray. Before I do, I just want to mention a couple of things for prayer. There are a number of congregational needs physically. We've got some folks going into surgery in the month of, of uh, July. So um, please keep one another uh, in prayer. And uh, as well as just kind of ongoing uh, physical needs, keep Betty Wood in your prayer. She is still, uh, she was released from the hospital uh, recuperating at her grandson's house, but still in need of a lot of prayer. And then just some unspoken needs throughout congregational life uh, as well. Uh, one thing I do want to pray for, and I'm sure all of us um, maybe or not have heard the news at least about the condo in Miami that collapsed. And uh, the, one of the reasons I want to pray for that, I think, as a church, we always should be in touch with uh, how much suffering exists in the world, and especially where uh, people have to live with an uncertainty if their loved one is alive or dead. That is just a, a horrible thing to have to deal with, and um, I, would, I think it would be good for the church to lift up those folks down there and in prayer for them, both those that have experienced loss, uh, people who have died, as well as those that right now just aren't sure what has happened, um, and for God's grace to be over them. Father, uh, just in a very, uh, in a very uh, loving and kind way, we need to remember people that we've never met, are far from us, and yet have such great need. Uh, Jesus, you said to your church, lift up your eyes and look out into the fields. They are already white unto harvest. Um, Lord, we see the harvest to be so great around us. And uh, we find it sometimes challenging uh, to pray about the harvest in other places. Uh, but we, Lord, first and foremost, want to remember that there are people suffering today. And in the midst of that harvest uh, that may look like uh, beautiful weed in a field, it is actually people whose lives are wrecked and ruined by sin and ravaged by Satan. And they need Jesus. And when tragedy hits and hardship comes, loss is so great and uncertainty bears upon them. They have no one to look to that is of any real help. We pray for people that are involved in rescue and recovery. Pray for those already grieving, knowing their loved one has is, is died, and those that are living on edge, not knowing what has happened. For your mercy to be there in whatever churches or Christian witness may be involved and to whatever extent may um, Jesus Christ be praised um, even though it would look like God you were absent uh, let us remember that you are never absent but that you and your strong hand of providence allowing and, and not allowing um, and the wisdom is with you O oh God we rest in that we, we draw back now and we think about the fields around us that are white in the harvest, the increase of violence in our own region, the ongoing devastation uh, in people's lives, brokenness. And, oh God, we pray that 
the light that is shining from this place in, in the lives of, of we, your people, um, may prove to be that which the Spirit would use uh, to bring others into faith in Jesus. Um, we, we recognize that without the Spirit's work, empowering uh, the Word and empowering our lives, uh, we simply do not have the ability to bring uh, anything forth. Oh God, we rest in the words that Darlene read from John's Gospel. The Spirit has been given. The Spirit is filling all things. Fill us. Fill this place. Fill our community in a time that seems wholly unlikely for renewal or revival to come. Oh God, be merciful and gracious to us. And Father, I do pray for the fellowship to come with Marcy and Rachel to be able to hear and have our, our hearts warmed and um, encouraged with the work of the gospel in Hungary. Oh Lord, let us uh, take up our responsibility of true partnership and relationship uh, to put ourselves out, as it were, to welcome this, this family who are serving you and serving us that we are encouraged by. Father, let us uh, rest in you wholly and completely. And as we come to your word now, may uh, you do in us what needs to be done, the work of the gospel, the work of grace. For we all, like sheep, had definitely gone astray. But now the great shepherd of our souls has brought us back. And let us live in the light of his presence, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. Go to... Uh, the third letter that John wrote, uh, if you've still struggled finding it, find Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Go back a couple books. Don't go too far. Just a couple pages. And there you will be. Three, John. I want to read the letter for us again um, as a way of just reminding uh, where we've been and what we've been up to in this letter. Uh, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephus, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony 
from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had hoped to write to you. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. The word of the Lord. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, one of the ways we have been reading 3 John is by asking if the church John wrote to practiced the same priorities as the church at Pentecost. It's been some 60 years since the day of Pentecost, uh, and it would appear that they did, and we have tried to, over uh, the last weeks, explain how that came about, and then to make some practical application into our church uh, as well. But one thing may cause us to raise a caution flag, because as you read the letter, you will notice that one notable name is missing. It's a very notable name. And should we be concerned that an apostle of Jesus would write a letter to the church of Jesus and yet nowhere in the letter mention the name of Jesus? Should that be a concern? Well, we can lower the caution flag because actually as we look at this letter and we think about this letter, what we find is that it is a portrait of Jesus. John is painting the most beautiful portrait of our Lord as he shows us the work of Jesus Christ in the life of the church. It is a beautiful portrait of Jesus. Uh, the portrait uh, became clear because the spirit that uh, Darlene read about there in John 16, the spirit that was given, actually transformed these people who were sinners. Now they bear the image of God in Christ. You see, John doesn't have to explicitly write for us the name of Jesus to see Jesus, because Jesus is all over this letter. As his life is shining through those who are walking in the truth. Someone might say, well, what about this guy Diotrephus? What about him? I mean, doesn't he distort the truth? Doesn't he distort the picture that John is painting? Well, I, I, I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 3. The church at Corinth was a mess. I mean, there, it was a disaster in so many, many ways. But listen to what Paul wrote to the church. He says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. And then Paul adds this. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. You, you see the church at Corinth, even though it was a mess, 
And even though John had to deal with this problem person, Diotrephus, still could bear the image of Jesus, was still a portrait of Jesus. And we need to keep this firmly in mind uh, because if we are ever tempted to think that the church will be problem-free, we will find ourselves disillusioned. We will, we will find ourselves uh, maybe tempted to pack it up and leave, to go somewhere else, or to leave the church altogether. The church will never in this life be without problems. And so it is vital that we follow uh, the lead of the apostles like John and like Paul, even as we look at our own congregation. I find it interesting that Paul, Paul said that the evidence he is going to present as to whether or not his apostolic ministry is authentic is going to be the church at Corinth. Th those would not be the people we would think that you'd want to present. No, you want to go to Thessalonica, you want to go to Philippi. They seem to have it together. No, Paul says no. And he writes this to the church at Corinth and he says, listen, you are my letter of recommendation. I mean, think about this. A pastor, pastor in a church. Church has all kinds of problems. A pastor's going to leave. And um, the next church says, well, give us some recommendations. He says, oh, just come and visit my congregation. They're my letter of recommendation. And they say, well, I thought you were leaving because they're full of problems. Yeah, they're full of problems. But they're still the people of Jesus. They are my letter of recommendation. John essentially says the same thing when he talks about Demetrius in verse number 12. He's received a good testimony from everyone, from the truth itself. We add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. You will always have the Diotrephus in the congregational life, but then you also have Demetrius. Imit don't imitate what's evil, imitate what is good. Just as Paul said, here's my letter of recommendation. John says, here's my letter of recommendation. I say, you are the letter of recommendation as to whether or not Jesus Christ is truly Lord of all and the Spirit has been given and at work, here we are. We are the letter of recommendation as to the work of the gospel. Neither place was perfect. The apostles themselves were not perfect and neither are we. Only Jesus Christ is perfect. And the good news of God's saving grace tells us that when we bring our imperfections to Him, He then transforms us into His image. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated on His glorious throne, is at the center of all things it is to that throne of grace that we come because it is there we find grace and mercy in time of need to bring us out of our imperfections and into the perfect, beautiful reality of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to tell you, it's no easy job to shepherd the church to Christ who is at the center. It is not. As I said last week, People are always pulling away from Jesus. They're always pulling away from the things that are central to what it even means to be a church. 
it becomes even more difficult in times of transition. In a lot of our lifetime, culture has shifted and transitioned so greatly that we don't even recognize the nation we once lived in for all that is going on. The same would be true about the church. Congregational attitudes have shifted and changed, mirroring in many ways um, the secular culture. I was explaining to a young pastor not too long ago that um, up until maybe 10 or 12 years ago, we could pretty much set our program in as a church to start about you know, the week after, the Sunday after Labor Day and then run all the way to the last Sunday in June. You can't do that anymore. Used to, you would say, well, most people, you know, they're going to be gone on vacation or whatever. It's going to be a July, August thing. can run all your programming in kind of the school year. We'd have the big end right with vacation Bible school. Can't do it anymore. Right now, we're wondering if we can start program, programming by Columbus Day, and we know we have to end it at the beginning of June. As people in congregational life, not just ours, by the way, but in the church in general, begin to mirror how the secular world works, it is more and more difficult to shepherd to the center where Christ is because people are still drawn out away from the center. Going here, going there, doing this, doing whatever. And hey, listen, Rhonda and I are going to be gone for the month of July. And we're going to miss you. We're going to be in church. We're going to be with family. We understand vacation. We understand all of that. It's not a critique against that. It's what I'm saying is, as secular culture continues to change in its attitudes towards the church, the church eventually adopts those things. And of course, you have the ever-present problem of sin. And yet, through it all, we are encouraged to locate our confidence in God. That's what Paul said. That's what John has been saying so that the good testimony we have doesn't flow from, you know, being beaten down with a whip and say, you better be in church every Sunday. No, it actually flows from the truth that we have given ourselves to the truth to such an extent that we are transformed by the truth. And so as I bring this series to a completion, I, I have a question. Will we endeavor to keep Christ at the center of all that we do? Is that our plan as a church? I mean, truly, as a church, are we going to endeavor? That, that, that word means put some energy and effort, right? Which might require a little bit of sacrifice and changes and attitudes. Are we going to endeavor to keep Christ at the center of all that we do? I'm about to use a science illustration. I've checked with three sources one has a, 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 an earned doctorate, the other one is a math major, and the other one is just smart about stuff. So three sources, this illustration is, I think, solid. <laughs> think about a traditional scale consisting of two plates, right, suspended at an equal distance between uh, the center where the fulcrum is. The scale is in balance when the fulcrum is in the center and the plates have the same amount of weight the scale becomes imbalanced if you move the fulcrum or if you put a weight unbalanced on either side in keeping with the illustration then we would affirm that jesus is the center he's the fulcrum we affirm this because the apostles wrote it interpreted the whole of the bible around this reality that all things are being united in christ christ 
That's not something we made up. That's what the apostles taught. That's what the whole of the Bible says. But in many cases, today and, by the way, throughout church history, the church has either moved the fulcrum or they put an unequal amount of weight on one plate or the other and the results have become disastrous for the church and for a nation like ours. Several hot topic issues could be uh, talked about to illustrate this point. You could talk about politics. You could talk about the problems of Christian nationalism. You could talk about the massive problems of church growth schemes, issues of race, and of course, human sexuality. And it is that last one, that last really hot topic I want to talk about for just a few moments. And I do so as a way of illustrating why the church needs to endeavor to keep Christ at the center as it applies equal weight to truth and love out here on the end so that we are in balance with all that we should be in balance with with Christ at the center. I want to remind you that confusion over human sexuality is not a recent problem. It is not a new development. But it is the normalization of sexual self-autonomy and sexual self-determination that um, has amplified the confusion and that now is a problem. It is the normalization of it. For many of us, uh, you know, decades ago, when uh, it was considered, uh, you would be considered living a life of disrepute if you lived together. In fact, what did culture call it? You were living in, in sin. Now it's not. It's a test run. It's all fine. See if you like the person or not, whatever. Just plan a 10-year thing and be done. That moves forward into a normalization then of sexual self-autonomy and sexual self-determination. Uh, to borrow again from the title of Dr. Mark Knoll's book, I've referenced a couple of times, The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. We could retitle and write a book, The Sexual Civil War is a Theological Crisis. It's not just a societal problem. It is a theological problem. It's not a new problem, but the normalization of it is, and thus we have been in, a sexual civil war, which is a theological crisis. Let's explain what I mean. As the post-World War II church lost its way theologically, it became imbalanced out here. The mainline denominational churches questioned the authority of Scripture. And as they questioned the authority of Scripture, they began to overemphasize love. Oh, the scriptures are too harsh. We can't really trust them. They took out the supernatural element, the mystery of it all, and they said, no, nah, that was for back then. We need a new narrative now. We need to talk about things different because we just need to love people, and it became unbalanced. That's why today, many of the denominational churches will have a pride flag flying in front of their buildings. They continue to be imbalanced because they have lost the ability to understand the scriptures as they talk about love. 
But then if you go back and you trace the steps, the fundamentalist movement, they lacked love because they saw themselves as the gatekeepers of truth. And as they became the gatekeepers of truth, they isolated themselves. They separated from everyone and everything if they didn't cross your T's just right or dot your I's just right. And they withdrew, which was wholly unhelpful. And then you have this big, messy thing called the evangelical church that began to really replace Jesus as the fulcrum with pragmatic forms of evangelism that looked effective. They filled churches and still fill churches today. Sign a card, raise a hand, join a small group. You've got Jesus. But they really weren't of Christ. And in many cases, thousands and thousands of people gather under the name of a church that know nothing of Jesus. And if you kind of trace those things from the post-World War II church forward, you get into the sexual revolution of the 1960s. It pushes its way into the culture of the church. The church struggled to respond because the church had lost its way theologically. And now, where we are today... 50 some odd years later, culture is no longer held in check by the authority of the church because the church has lost its own authority within itself. And when that happened, the floodgates just opened, the toxic waters of sin pour forth. Society is now so sexually confused that people really don't know if they're a man or a woman. In fact, our governor, you may have saw the announcement now, you can uh, identify as a man or a woman or nothing in New York State. And that is just uh, the tip of the iceberg because all of that in curriculum form is being taught and will continue to be taught. And what is the result of this? I was reading an article in the Washington Post this past week. Uh, according to a recent study done by the Williams Institute, over one million people now not one million isn't that many people and yet it is and i'll tell you why in just a moment over one million in the lgbtq community in our nation identify as non-binary the term non-binary can be used to describe people who do not identify exclusively as a male or female now i'm going to just read a portion of this article and I want you to hear how desperate, then, the situation becomes. I quote, Most non-binary adults in the United States reported being young, white, living in urban areas, and not making enough money to make ends meet. That's not the disastrous part. More than half have said they've been physically or sexually assaulted. But listen carefully. Nearly 94% have considered suicide, and almost 40% have attempted it. In its desire for sexual freedom, society, fueled by sin and deception and delusion, has poured into the lives of unsuspecting young people such confusion that they would consider self-harm because they can't figure it out. They're, they can't make sense of it. They would consider taking their own lives. 
How should the church respond to people in a culture that increases in confusion, a culture that demands sexual self-determination? Should we just love them for who they are or who they believe themselves to be? Should we hoist up the pride flag? Should we pack it in, isolate ourselves, throw truth bombs at them from behind our church walls and help it helps kind of raise our flag of self-righteousness and let it wave in the breeze? Should we maybe find new and creative ways to get them in the church building? Maybe have them say a prayer, fix them, sign a card that'll fix them. How should the church apostolic respond? How should the church, filled with the Spirit of Christ, respond? Well, of course, we, we can and should look to the many examples of how Jesus responded to broken people. We should follow his lead, but we cannot do that sort of thing willy-nilly. That's what, that's what the denominational churches did. They said, oh, we want to just be like Jesus. But they left out the truth part of Jesus. We can't do that. We have to look more and more into the apostolic writings. We have to take our cue from the way the apostles interpret the whole of the Bible because it is within their teaching we find Christ who distributed truth and love in equal measure. Can you imagine Three years of public ministry and all that Jesus had to face day after day and never once did those balance get out one way or the other imbalanced. Never once. As we take the teachings of Christ and more fully, we equip ourselves more fully than we go out sent in the name of Jesus. We take up our call with servant love, for just as Jesus was sent into the world with love, he sends us forth with love, but we also serve with truth because Jesus is the embodiment of truth. I just want to remind you that um, I would say the likelihood is significant that you're going to come across either parents with children who are sexually confused because the parents are sexually confused or they're exposed to sexual confusion or maybe in your own family or close circle of friends, whatever it might be. And you and I, as the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, need to know how to respond. We can no longer sit on the sidelines idle, just uninformed as to what the Scriptures would teach and how the Scriptures would transform us so that we might then be the portrait of Christ into the brokenness that is all around us, into the self-destruction that is all around us. It is incumbent upon myself and the other elders that I serve with to shepherd the church of Jesus to Jesus who stands at the center of all human history. And as we come to Jesus, we plead for his grace so that we can be a portrait of Jesus that people would be drawn to for help, for healing, for a true understanding of who they are. For when God created, he created them what? Male and female. The first line of opposition to God is found right there. And self-determination. 
that look kind of acceptable. You know, back here, people living together. Well, they love each other. They'll probably get married one day. But now, oh, this is, this is it's the same thing, folks. It's the same line of sin. It's the same hopelessness. And the church has to grapple with this by addressing it theologically. And so I close with the question, is Christ at our center? Is Christ at our center? And we might say, well, of course he's at our center. We say his name all the time. Like You can't come in this building without hearing the name of Jesus spoken in reverential ways. But that doesn't mean he is at our center. Just because you say his name, or we say his name. Coming to the true center of Jesus demands that we turn from our sin, our own sin, as we surrender to the authority of the Scriptures as taught by the apostles as they interpret the whole of the Scripture. Coming to the true center of Jesus is a very demanding thing. You can't just come half-heartedly. You have to come with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. For just as the Spirit transformed people in Corinth and transformed people there in the church John is writing to, he can transform us as well, that we would be in the image of God. So that we will find it our joy to hear that our children are walking in truth. We, as God's children, are walking in truth. So I'll I'll ask you to think on this. What's been your takeaway from 3 John. Maybe you want to go back and re-listen to some of the sermons or reread the book. What's been your takeaway? I'll give you mine. My takeaway is this. We too are a portrait of the glorified Christ waiting to be completed. But while we wait, we can be confident that through the powerful work of the Spirit, we indeed one day will be made complete. We will bear the image of the glory of God in the face of Christ for all eternity. But until that day arrives, let us endeavor to keep truth and love in balance as we are drawn to Christ who is at the center of all things. Let me pray. Oh, Almighty God, you have built your church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Would you grant us so to be joined together in unity of spirit by their doctrine that we may be made a holy temple acceptable unto you through the same Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. As we come to the table then this morning, we are reminded the strength, the mercy, and the grace that it brings. But we are also reminded of what price was paid in order for us to be able to come to the table. That what Darlene read from Isaiah 53 is indeed true. That he was wounded for our transgression and he was crushed for our iniquity. I'd encourage you in a time of quiet prayer to take your own heart to the throne of grace right now 
that you might find grace and mercy to help in your time of need. Let's be quiet as we prepare our hearts for the table. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.